Unashamed, the recovery podcast. Where we are breaking the shame and stigma of addiction and recovery. One episode at a time. By having real conversations about real recovery. Hello, Recovery Family. Welcome to a, another episode of the Unashamed Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Josh, a recovering addict that celebrates recovery from a 20-year porn and sex addiction. On today's episode, we once again bring you a true story of redemption, hope, and overcoming addiction. At the center of what the Unashamed Recovery Podcast is all about is breaking the stigma and the shame of addiction and of recovery. And when we do that by having honest and real conversations with real people in real recovery, like our episode today. It is a proven fact that we heal once the shame is gone and shame dies when we share in safe places. And I hope this podcast is a safe place for all, for those who are sharing and for those who are listening. There is healing in sharing our secrets and our stories of addiction, trials, and powerlessness. And even more healing in hearing how others recover. And like I mentioned, we have a guest with us today to share another powerful story of hope. My guest today is Summer H., Thanks, Summer, for taking a little bit of time out of your day today to stop by and to talk with me and to share your amazing story with the Recovery family. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Now, Summer, before we dive in and we start unpacking your testimony, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Kind of give them a little bit of a background and a little bit of a context to the person that you are and to the story that they're about to hear. I'm 35. I'm married and we have two sons. Um, I'm a manager at a local hospital and I have been clean off meth for nine years. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, uh, well, Summer, I don't know if you've listened to the show, uh, but we like to inspire, well, not so much inspire, but encourage the listeners that are also going through recovery and through addiction. So many of our listeners are in recovery and also in addiction, and we like to provide testimonies or stories from real people in recovery. And so as we move on into your testimony, like all great stories and all great books, they all have a beginning. What does the beginning of Summer's book look like? What is chapter one for you? Mm, probably my childhood. So um, I grew up in a one person, well, me and my mother, just me and my mom. And um, my dad um, was not in the picture. They divorced whenever I was one. And um, he was never around. He would always tell me he would come, and he ne would never show up. And I would, my mom had many men in and out our lives. And at one point, I think I was two or three, and I remember um, watching her get beat. By her husband at the time um she had a black handprint on her face from where he slapped her so hard to the bed and um so that was always a picture in my mind that I didn't want you know to go through that so um, it's kind of like a uh a early imprint yes, on your life yes okay. it was 
Um, but the, the men just, you know, in and out and, um, she always took, I've, I've been to, um, church since I was four. So I knew church. Um, I knew who God was, mm -hmm. but I didn't actually know him like as a relationship. I always thought he was a big God up there that wanted to throw condemnation and um, hellfire and brimstone type thing. Yeah. You know, uh, with me, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and my family was in church every time the doors were open. Like, I'm not kidding. If they were in there changing the carpet in the sanctuary, my family was going to be there. And uh, I, too, did not have a relationship. Like, I knew God, just like you, knew God, and I knew of Him. I even knew about grace. Heard it every Sunday, but I didn't have that firsthand experience with it. And I thought God was this angry God who sat on the edge of a seat with a lightning bolt ready to hit me with one as soon as the slightest mistake. That's That was my image of God. So I can completely agree with you there. Like, I 100% get that. That's um, I think that's a common thing for people, especially down here in the South. <laughs> I um, went to a private school in elementary. I, um, I was bullied there. Um, I was basically the only, well, I was the only girl, but I was the big girl. There was another girl that was a skinny girl. And all the boys and her would tell me how fat I was, how ugly I was, mm -hmm. and just degrade me. And um, then at this, I, my last year there was seventh grade. And then I went to Lamar in the eighth grade. And that's a private academy. Yes, it is. And um, my first year there, the the girls were very ugly and mm -hmm. hateful to me. Um, I guess because I was still the big girl. Yeah. Um, but I went out for the basketball team, and so the girls on the basketball team started liking me, and then in the ninth grade, I um. From playing basketball and I guess softball, I kind of slimmed down a little bit, mm -hmm. and so people didn't really pick on me as much, and so I went. You kind of accepted. Yes, and so then I started. Um, I went out for the Deb Social Service Club, and um, I was picked up by them, mm -hmm. and I so I started getting more friends and stuff, mm -hmm. and I felt like, well, I don't want to be the girl that I was in the eighth grade where everybody was so mean to me, so I um, I started doing what everybody else was doing, and so that's when I started drinking at 14. Okay, so trying to fit into that crowd so that you're not picked on like you were in eighth grade so you want to fit in and you start just kind of being one of the one of the crowd and drinking and that was kind of your entry into it yes right? it was mm -hmm. i got you okay so from starting drinking at 14 kind of where where did that lead you at such a a, a young age well i started drinking at 14 and um it was and i had i had a job so I didn't really, I, had, I could buy, you know, my own alcohol and stuff. And by the time I was 17, my mom really didn't want, my mom, she sheltered me a lot. And so when I was away from her, I just went wild. And so I went to my friend's house on a, I think it was a Saturday or something, but it was a lot of us over there. And... I remember taking six vodka shots 
and that was all I remembered. The next day, um, my, I woke up and I had, I had like where on my face where I had, um, like I had brushed my face against the concrete. Mm. So I had scrapes and stuff all over my Damn. forehead and all over my cheek. And I woke up and I, I barely could focus. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, what happened to my face? I was like, I don't remember. And so Damn. my mom said that she picked me up. She came and found me because I wouldn't answer my phone. And I was in the ditch. And my face was like that. And so I laid in bed for two days, probably couldn't hardly move because I had gotten alcohol poisoning at the age of 17. Man, that is crazy. Man, that all, to have that kind of blackout, that's just, man, that's crazy. Um, so then after, I, it didn't stop me. I kept continuing to drink. Then I got a softball scholarship to East Central Community College. Um, I stayed in the dorms there. So life was great. I had what I've always dreamed of. I had my scholarship. I was going to college. But of course, <clears throat> I didn't know anybody there, but I fell into the wrong crowd again. I fell into that I want to be good enough for people. So yeah. I fell into the crowd that partied all the time. And so um I would go to soft I would go to to class, I would go to softball, and then I would party. Mm -hmm. And I fell into that crowd where there was drugs as well. Um I had never experienced that. Um, so they started giving me pain pills and Xanax and, um, started smoking weed in college and I almost got kicked out of college because the dorm mother found when she did a, a search from the, in our dorm room, because she did that, you know, every so often, she would search our dorm, and she found um, a can, like a, kind of like one of those hard cigarette cans yeah. with, like, seeds and stuff from weed and mm -hmm. papers in it and empty liquor bottles in my cabinet. So, um, I got... So, I you was, weren't very good at hiding it. I was not at all. <laughs> I was young and dumb. <laughs> I was scared to death to call my mom. To come help me get out of the situation so I wouldn't get to see all the softball team. Yeah. <laughs> so I called my dad and my dad came and he talked with the, the dean and talked with my coach and made it all better to where I could still go to college and play softball. So you make mention that you called your dad instead of your mother. So Let's reverse that. If you would have called your mom, do you not think she would have tried to have fixed any of that, or she would have just kind of, uh, kind of let the whole situation go as it was heading and not try to meet with the dean and the softball coach and fix any of it? She probably would, but I was way more scared of her. I got you. And um, getting in trouble than my dad because my dad was not in my life so he would never punish me and he did everything to try to help me i got you okay all right and so that's all happening there in college and you know he talks with the dean and so does he get you so does he get you back into school or keep you on the uh the team or or how does how does that play out I was able to um, stay in school, and I was able to stay on the softball team. Um, not long after that happened, because that was, it was probably a month or so, maybe, um, I injured myself in a softball practice, mm -hmm. 
to where I had to um, have emergency surgery on my knee. Man. So that ended my softball career, but it didn't end my partying career. <laughs> I got you. And I didn't finish school. I um I think I was I was more focused on partying than um finishing my classes. So I probably lacked maybe three classes from getting my associate's degree there. So you were very, very close into to finishing. So what what happened that got in the way of you finishing that associate degree? Because you were so close. You were you were right there. Not caring. Not caring. I would rather I would rather stay up all night drinking and doing those drugs and go into not even probably go into class. And if I did go to class, it was because I was drunk or something. So I didn't, I didn't care. You know, uh, my, my uh, addiction that I have was not drugs and alcohol. My addiction was point and sex. But whenever I was in college, I went to uh, Meridian Community College and I did not have an addiction with alcohol or weed or anything like that. But I actually did drop out of college because of alcohol and weed. And I was the same way, partying and uh, staying up late, uh, playing Xbox and getting high. And I would skip class to go back to the dorm and smoke weed and play the Xbox. And so it's kind of funny how, though, you know, it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of a, I can very closely relate to what you're going through because it gets to a point where you would rather take care of those needs than look at the big picture and say, hey, I need to be in class. Because when you're going through that, you're really not thinking of that. You're not thinking of the long call of how that would affect me of dropping out of school. Most definitely. Oh, uh, and yeah. So I don't know if maybe that whole thing kept me from actually getting into an addiction with drug and uh, alcohol and weed, but... Yeah, I've never had an issue with alcohol and, and drugs, and so I'm very thankful for that. But getting back to your story, and so you're out of school, so what's going on in your mind during this time? You're, you've done dropped out of school. What is life looking, for, looking like for you now? I moved back in with my mother after... after um school and I um started working at because I'd always bartend a waitress mm -hmm. so I started working at Crescent City Grill it was a restaurant and yeah. bar here in Meridian so I once again got into the people that would hang out after work and you know drink and those kind of people so, um, I made really good friends with the, one of the, um, waitresses in the bar and she introduced me to cocaine. And so I started doing that and taking the pills. I never really, um, carried on the weed. I was more like the up drugs to get me awake. So while you were in, in college, you had never gotten into well, cocaine. It was just the weed and the pills in college. Correct. And so now you're you're out of college and you you're slowly increasing getting into the heart the harder stuff. And I'm doing the air quotations here, uh, like cocaine. Correct. Okay. And making my life a lot better. So I thought. <laughs> So you thought. <laughs> I was having fun, so I thought. Um, and so she got me to, and I'm definitely not blaming anything on her because it was my own choice. That's right. But I would go with her to other bars, and I was probably 19, 20 at the time, so I was not of age to go to bars. Yeah. Um, but I was with older people, so people just assumed that I was 21, or they really just didn't care. Yeah. 
Um, so I um met a bartender and he we started talking and he was older and he would serve me drinks and stuff and we would do cocaine together and those kind of things and um we would go out to bars and stuff and hang out all night together so um I didn't know at the time until like probably three months we had been together that he was a married man wow and um after I found out that he was married um he started mentally and physically and emotionally abusing me um he would he would hold me by the neck up against my where your seatbelt is up mm-hmm. against the door and choke me until I almost passed out man um around that time I was still about 20 um I started using meth and I at the time I just started snorting it Mm-hmm. Um, and then not too long after that, I would smoke it. So, around all this time. So, your introduction with the meth, did he have any part of that, or was that separate from him, or or how did you get introduced to that, to that meth? Well, I think, um, Crescent City at the time had fired me for something, I can't remember what. So, but they, the people who fired me, got me a job at Outback Steakhouse. And, um, that was like the hub of drugs. Mm -hmm. And somebody there introduced me to meth. Okay. So, it didn't have nothing to do with... No. Okay. It was just all around the same time. It was all kind of connected. Yeah. I got you. Okay. So, you went from snorting the, uh, the meth and and that led into the uh, injecting it or mm-hmm. and so after that where where do, where do you go from that you you kind of graduate and I say graduate very loosely but you graduate from in college weed and pills and then you kind of climb up that ladder into cocaine and now you find yourself shooting up meth where where do you go from there? Um, you either get arrested or hit your rock bottom. But um, <clears throat> before I started shooting up, um, when I was with the married guy, I got pregnant and I had an abortion. I was so scared about everything that um, I thought for me as heavy as drugs as I was using, I would, he, the baby would come out, you know, deformed or just probably the drugs in my head talking. Um, <clears throat> so I left him and he would tell me that I wasn't really pregnant or whatever, just, you know, continuous. And so I finally was able to leave him and I still worked at Outback and I would go out and get wasted. Um, so about 23, age of 23, I was, I was raped. A guy took me from the bar to go get some ecstasy Mm -hmm. and he pinned me down in a house and um, raped me. Man. Um, I stole, I cheated, I lied, I stole from my family, I would steal from Walmart, I would steal from anybody. My, after that abortion, it just kind of just spiraled. And so, about the age of 24, something like that, I started shooting up. And I, it, it made me become a person that I was not 
it was the devil himself. There were nights that I could see the devil just looking in the mirror because of what it had made me. Did you recognize yourself looking in the mirror? Or would you become somebody that you didn't even recognize? I didn't even recognize the person that I was. So, during this time with all these different things going on with having from going and experiencing all these traumatic events in your life, how did that affect your your drug use? Like, how, were you using more often, or or how how was was there a correlation between the two? Did you see all those traumatic events? Were they making you use more, or or how was that playing out? Oh, it definitely made me use more. There wasn't many nights that I wasn't completely coherent. Like I would take Xanax at work and then I would take pain pills and then after I got off I would get a gram of meth and do that and then I would take an ecstasy pill I would just completely just take everything that I could get my hands on and take it and I there were many nights that I woke up and I was how, how did I get home so you're, you're taking all these different things throughout the day to help, I'm assuming, to help cope and to just kind of just get through and make you feel better and to yes. forget about all those things. Did taking all those things help you and make you feel better? Or act, like after you came down off those highs, did you find yourself in a better position? Where Did you forget about all those things that you were trying to forget? Did it, in fact, help you cope? with the things that you're trying to cope with at the when I was high it helped but after I got sober it would always come back so it was like a revolving door that never I never healed from yeah yeah because you were just uh like you said it's a revolving door you're just as soon as you come down you're getting that uh you're reminding of all those things, and so then you're trying to go and get high again to forget again. Am I am I right on that? Yes, it's like it's like you have a cut on your arm, and you go and you get um you go to the hospital because it's a bad cut, and they put a band aid or a wrap on it, and that's just like getting high, but the wrap is getting high. Yeah, and then it you eventually have to take it off to change it. And when you rip the Band-Aid off is when you're sober and you're like, what have I done? I've completely ruined my life again. Yeah. Man. I like I like how you put that. that that's a great way of, of putting that. So you're, you said you're finding yourself stealing and, and all of that and trying to and just keep on going down this, this dark hole. So... Where did, how how did you get past that part? Like, you're finding yourself, I'm assuming, in a pretty low hole. You know, you're stealing to get by and all that. Where, where do you go from there? When I was 27, I was living with this guy, and um, he was a cop. And so, when he was leave to go to work I would that's my time when I would get high and so I went over to and he didn't know any of this was going on uh, he probably did but didn't <laughs> really care or, I was about to say he'd be the world's worst cop <laughs> if he yeah he wasn't a very great person he lied and cheated yeah. and that kind of thing I too so um but I went over to the dope man's house early one morning. It was May the 25th. I will never forget the date. May the 25th, 2011. We took a really big shot. I was really high. So he asked me to go with him to meet the man and um, told me, because he didn't have a ride, so he had to use my car. So I went in to Walmart and... He wanted me to steal some stuff for him. So, it's really early, probably 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, and I'm in Walmart, and 
I didn't know this at the time, but apparently I always carried like this really big purse and mm -hmm. I would have holes in it where I would stick the stuff mm -hmm. to steal. And so um, I was doing that and I had a knife in my back pocket and it was open. So that was awesome too. Um, <laughs> Cause I would cut the tags and stuff off. Yeah. And at one point he came up to me, he was like, we've got to go. Apparently, I'd been in there for hours, and Man. I told him just a little bit longer, you know, and at another point, two cops, two detectives came up to me and was asking me if I was okay and stuff. I had cut my finger while I was with the knife that mm -hmm. was still open in my back pocket, and I told him that I was fine and everything. I, apparently, I'd been in there from like eight or nine o'clock in the morning until dark, five wow. or six o'clock at night. Wow. After the employee finally caught me in the bathroom and I was cutting stuff off and sticking it in my purse. So those same detectives came and came to get me and arrested me for shoplifting. So how much stuff could you shoplift in a matter of 10 hours? <laughs> I thought that I could get, I had a whole buggy full of stuff that I thought that I could stick in my purse. <laughs> I was really messed up. So the, uh, the detectives, they come and they, they arrest you. And I'm assuming they take it back down to Meridian PD. Not before they searched my car. Ah. And I was in Newton County. So I wasn't in Meridian. Ah. Okay. So, um, they searched my car and they found an empty syringe. And then we went down to Newton City Police Department. They interrogated me for hours. I had a fresh needle mark in my arm and they saw that. And so they, um, finally after me not knowing anything because I really didn't know a whole lot, you know, I just, I bought the drugs and did them. And they charged me with shoplifting. I can't remember. I don't think it was a felony, but it was like a thousand dollars. Maybe it was, I don't remember. Um, but they charged me with a felony, um, possession charge and, um, took me to the Newton County jail where I sat for six days. Never, I, well, I'd been in jail one time, but only for a few hours. So that was a total new experience for me. Six days, man. I have never been in jail, so I just a couple, couple minutes would be enough for me. I couldn't imagine. I wouldn't make it any longer in jail. Whew, six days. Mm. And so were, during that time period of six days, were you able to kind of, detox and kind of come down a little bit or yes it was awful i detoxed in jail um uh for the first few nights i couldn't sleep because my my muscles were jerking and stuff and i knew they they gave me a phone call but i did not want to call my mother and so i didn't but my mama knows everybody and the next thing i know is i'm sitting in a jail cell with um, a murderer, an arsonist, a burglar, and my mom, they're coming out of the phone going, Summer, Richie, your mother says that she loves you and that she's praying for you. <laughs> and all I could think was, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's so embarrassing. <laughs> they're going to kill me now. <laughs> So she Man. found out from somebody else, and um, so she, I called her after that, and she, I said, Mom, I really just want to change my life. I'm tired of doing this same old thing, and she left me in jail. She used, usually would not have. She, um... She enabled me a lot. She paid off credit card bills and gave me money and bought me things and got me out of trouble and yeah. stuff like that. 
Um, but she left me in there until she found me a place to go. So was that the six days or was that longer than the six days? That was six days. That was the six days, okay. So she found you a place to go, uh, and I'm assuming you went from jail there or? Yes, I did. So I, I went, um, she transported me from jail to straight to Jacob's Well. Jacob's Well. And for everybody who's not familiar with this, the Mississippi area, because I know we got a lot of listeners from all over the country, what is Jacob's Well? It is a Christ-centered recovery program for women. Um, it's six months, and they, you go to, you get up, you do your Bible time, you get up, and you um, go to thrift stores, and that's where you learn to become a different person by doing work, and you get to interact with people and you get to um you get to see how to function in society without being high and um you go they have a church there that you go to church on Sundays and they have a devotion every um day of the week so you said the Christ Center Recovery Program it's kind of like a 12-step program or I no, it's okay. not. I've never been through the twelve steps. Gotcha. Um, it's strictly um a they believe that um Christ is the only one that can deliver you and they counsel you mm-hmm. and they work through your problems with you and um lead you to Jesus. I got you. Okay. Yeah. On here on the Unashamed Recovery podcast, I have experience with a, a Christ Center twelve step program of Celebrate Recovery. But I want to make mention, guys, that is not the only way. Like if you find sobriety through rehab, that's great. If you find sobriety through sitting in a jail cell, that's great. If you find sobriety through holistic me- uh, measures and meditation. That's great. Cross Center twelve step program worked for me. Cross Center program at Jacobs Well worked for Summer. So that's great. I, and I want to make mention, whatever way works to get you sober, do that way. I don't. I don't, And I talk about Cross Center recovery groups a lot on this show. But I just want to make mention, do what works for you. Work the program that keeps you sober. Now, <laughs> sorry about. That interruption in summer, but uh, so you're at Jacob's Well. How long were you there at that program? I was there for six months. Six months. Um, I was scared to death when I came in. I didn't know where I was going to. Um, and the people there were really happy, and I was always really depressed, and mm-hmm. so I didn't understand why these people were so happy. Just from people walking in the door, they would clap. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? Where where they brought me to? But um, I found out that it was just from learning how to build a new life and through Jesus. Got you. Okay. Well, that is all. That's terrific. So you're sitting here with me today. So I'm assuming you eventually left Jacob's Well. So... How do you keep up, now that you're out of that environment, how do you keep up your level of sobriety now? What what keeps you going through that process? I have to, um, I have to make sure that I am not hanging around the people that I once was when I used. I, um, I, I thought when I got out that I could, bring those people to Christ, but then I learned that I wouldn't be the one that brought them to Christ. I could pray for them, mm-hmm. and somebody else could bring them to Christ, because if I tried to bring them to Christ, they would just bring me down, because yeah. people bring you down more than you bring them up. Yeah. And so, if you're close to them. Yeah. And so, um, I stay away from those people. I make sure I go to church. Um, I'm plugged into church 
That's the difference. Yes. There is a difference you, in... Instead of just going, yep. you have to be plugged in. And you have to... Um, it has to be your family and people. You have to conversate with people and be become people's friends. Because when life gets you down, because even though I'm sober, life hasn't been fair. Yeah. I have to have those godly examples and godly people in my life to keep me, you know, yeah. uplifted and stuff. And I, you have to stay in your Bible and you have to talk to God and you have to make a conscious effort every single day don't matter where you're at in recovery to not go back to what you were because even though I'm nine years sober doesn't mean I don't have thoughts I still have um thoughts I still have using dreams I mean it the devil's at work every day yep exactly I tell people that I'm closing in on three years of sobriety and I tell people just because I've got almost three years of sobriety does not mean that I still don't have the same temptations and the same urges that I had before. And that's, I think that's the difference maker is now I'm equipped with the tools to help me cope and to deal with those temptations. As before, I would just that's right. take them and just act out on them. That's right. I think that's the difference maker. And so talk a little bit about life after you got out of recovery. I know you talked about how, you know, the things you had to do and stayed away from those people. But talk just a few minutes, and we're we're winding down here, but talk about just life outside of Jacob's Well, like getting back into just normal living outside of that environment. Um, Well, after Jacob's Well... I, um, I, men were, men was always my downfall. So I thought that I had to, um, have a man in my life. So I found one probably three months after I got out. Um, well, I started working at Rush Hospital. Didn't have any kind of experience, but I got a job. That was a blessing. Um, and then I met this guy and he was a, he was a, he, he quit his job three weeks, you know, after we had got together. So he used my car, he used me, he, um, he used all my money. He mentally, verbally abused me. Um, I was scared to death of him because probably three or four months before we got together, he got a felony domestic charge for almost killing his girlfriend with a pistol. Man. So, um... Sounds like a great guy. I always pick the winners. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I really wanted to get out of the relationship, but, um, I found out I was pregnant. And so, I was pro- We got together in probably March, and so, July, I found out that I was pregnant. And, um... God gave me the strength to leave him. And so I left him and there I was living with my mom, 28, pregnant, single. So I, I what I did was I worked. And early in recovery. Yeah, and early in recovery. So I worked and I took care of myself and I had a son when I had a beautiful baby in February of 2013 and I I focused on God my son and me and so for four years I stayed completely single and I prayed Everybody at my church prayed for God to bring me a husband. Because, you know, I always pick the winners. And (laughs) I didn't want to go through, my son to go through what I went through. 
in my childhood. So, um, August of 2016, um, God brought my husband into my life. And we got married in April of 2017, and he adopted Jackson. So, Jackson has always, all he has ever known is Jim, my husband. And, um, um, I worked my way up from, at Rush, from being an entry-level position to being a manager. And I've been there for eight years. Awesome. So, it's just... Awesome. That is, that is amazing. And in mine and my dad's relationship, mine and my mom's relationship, God completely restored all of that. All of the broken stuff that the devil and I did, um many years he restored we have an awesome relationship now that's great that's amazing to know that there is a future past meth addiction and to hear that kind of hope i mean you're in a supervisor position at your work and that's just to me if if i'm in meth addiction and I am at the end of my road and I just I don't have any hope. That to me would be everything to hear that come out of somebody's mouth is that hey, she's got a life after meth addiction. That is amazing. Um and Summer, we're gonna go ahead and wind on down and I like to ask a couple questions at the end of each episode. And uh the first question. What is the biggest thing that you have taken away from your story? What What are some lessons learned from your story? I learned that even though I strayed and left God, he was always there waiting on me to come back to him with his arms wide open. No matter how far you go, he will always be there to welcome you back. That, that, that's, all, that's an important one there. Uh, that, to me, is something that keeps me going in. In my recovery, uh, I would relapse, and I would think that I'm just so unworthy, and I'm unable to come to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness, and then get back on the my journey to recovery, and I would just stay in that relapse. And that happened to me several times, so that that is important there. Uh, question number two: What would you tell someone that is going through the same thing? that you came out of? I would tell them that the friends that you think you have are the boyfriend that you have that that you think loves you. They don't really love you. They just want to use you. They just want to bring you down because they're miserable and they, misery loves company. So don't focus on them. Focus on yourself. Yeah. That uh, that's that's a, that's another good one because I'm a firm believer we are who the people we hang around. Yes, I believe that the people you hang around and the that that's your circle, they have a greater influence on you than probably anybody else in your life. So it's another good one. Bad company corrupts good character. Hey, that's right. I like that. I like that. That might be the title of this episode. I like that. <laughs> And question number three, what impact do you think the current you has from the old you? That's a tough one. I have learned that I can't hang around old friends that aren't in recovery. Also, I have to stay close to Jesus, and it's only because of him that I'm sober. So that's what I would, the impact that I would have on the new me from the old me because the old me would want to um, be around those old friends and stuff because that's who I, I knew who I was with them. So now I know who I am in Christ. And so that's the, the difference. Yeah, that is the difference. That That's right. All right. And so... 
this is something new that I've just started recently. Uh, I want to show my appreciation and my gratitude for people that come by and share their story. And so thank you for coming by and sharing your incredible story. Thanks for your willingness to be so open and so vulnerable. And to show my appreciation, I want to give you a few moments of a open mic. My show is yours. You have the chance to say anything that you want to say to that one person who may be listening that needs to hear what has been laid on your heart to say. I didn't think I could ever be sober. I didn't know how to be sober. But here I am, nine years later, with the help of Jesus. If I can do it, so can you. Jesus loves you even though you feel like you don't deserve to be loved or if you feel worthless. If you were the only person on this earth, Jesus would have died on the cross just for you. That's how much he loves just you. That's all. Uh, hey, I can't think of a better way to uh, take advantage of an open mic. That's uh, some great encouragement. Uh, and guys... That's going to wind it up for episode eight of Unashamed Recovery. I hope that today's episode has shined some hope and some encouragement for you. Uh, don't forget, you can always join the recovery conversation with us on Twitter. Find us at, at Unashamed Podcast. And also, use the hashtag Recovery Podcast. My bad, I just read that wrong. Hashtag recovery posse to connect with thousands of others in the recovery community worldwide. Do you want to be a guest on the show or simply tell us how we are doing or ask a question? Well, the best way is to send us an email at the unashamed podcast at yahoo.com. Once again, that's unashamed podcast at yahoo.com. And Summer, if someone wants to reach out to you or maybe book you to speak at a recovery group or to be a guest on a, another recovery podcast, what is the best way for them to reach you? You can find me on Facebook under Summer Harrison. All right. And guys, I think Summer has done an excellent job today. This is the We were talking before, and I think this is the first time you've given your story in how many years? So I think you have done a fantastic job. And uh, guys, if you want to reach out to her there to speak at a recovery group or be a guest on another uh, recovery podcast. And with that, y'all, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast. And I hope you all continue to stay sober. And until next time, I love y'all. And remember to be unashamed. <laughs>